June greetings, happy Pride Month, and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's Friday Lecture Series online edition. I'm Anthony Wong, Program Coordinator for the Institute. I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. Uh, we're honored to have with us our good friend, Glenn McPante, to present his article, A Tiger, T-I-G-E-R, A Sustainable Model for Building LGBTQ AAPI Community, uh, which was published in Asian American Policy Review in October 2020. Glenn D. McPante, Esquire, is an adjunct professor in the Asian American Studies Program at Hunter College CUNY, and he also teaches race and law at uh, Brooklyn Law School. Glenn is the former executive director of the National Queer Asian Pacific Islander Alliance, uh, which works at the intersections of LGBT uh, equality, racial justice, and immigration right, uh, immigrants' rights. Uh, prior to that, Glenn had a long and distinguished career as a civil rights attorney at, as the Democracy Program Director at uh, Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, ALDA, uh, working to protect and promote the voting rights and political participation of Asian Americans. Uh, Glenn has published scholarly legal articles, authored numerous reports, and has given commentary to media outlets, including the New York Times, uh, USA Today, Boston Globe, CNN, and National Public Radio. Uh, please welcome Glenn McPante. How are you? Uh, so it's so good uh, to be here again. Let me get my PowerPoint up. Usually I say... You know, if those of you who know me, you type, use paper. I use a lot of paper. So I say, here are my points. I'm the power. But I actually really do have a real PowerPoint this time. Can I just say, so, so some of you I know in the chat, some of you I've seen you in the chat. Um, I miss a lot of y'all. You know, it's been a hard year. Um, not leaving Incapia. That, that's been great. Look at how, if those of you who know me, I've lost like 20 Incapia pounds since last year. But it's just been a hard year for so many of us. And it is so good to do this program again with y'all. And Ari, the Asian American Research Institute. I actually have to give a lot of love and credit to, um, I wanted to, I teach um, Asian American Civil Rights at Hunter College. Uh, and Introduction to Asian Studies, which we call Asians in the U.S. Um, I wanted to do a new class called Asian American Queerness. But, you know, it's offered in California, but I needed some support to try to figure it out. And Joyce Moy, the director of the RA program, came in as a knight in signing armor and said, we'll provide you with the resources and the assistance that you need to develop this class. And it's the only class that's offered in the tri-state area. Um, around the intersection of Asian American identity and LGBTQ uh, identity as well. So if you are a student uh, and interested, it is offered this fall, so I'm very excited about that. And since this time, I've been taking a lot of time to try to reflect. You know, I used to be at Incapia and have worked for many years developing uh, queer Asian communities. I did this before. Incapia, I'll do it after Incapia. I did it at Incapia. My commitment to the community, and I'll share my personal story later on um, towards the end, uh, you know, will not stop. However way I can do this, I will do this. But I spent the past year, like many of us, reflecting. Reflecting on, you know, myself, my goals, my objectives, and how do I make a meaningful contribution to our community? Uh, how do I do better? Uh, I've made many mistakes. And also, what is it in our community that builds sustainable organizations? And I had an opportunity to write this out in an article, a theory. 
which I call Tiger, the ty- typography of intersexual, intersectional gender and sexual empowerment and resistance. And I really tried to study, and I think I have figured out uh, what a sustainable model is for building queer API community. And there are one or two points in which I'm still trying to go back and forth. Um, I would love some of your advice and counsel uh, on this. I also think it's particularly helpful because of the times that we're in. The organizations across the country have been, many of them have been dormant. They've shifted to online programming where most of the work was live. How do we come back and revitalize our community to continue to build community and advance a movement for social change? So those of you who know me, uh, I teach law. I, you know, was a civil rights attorney at ALDEF, um, which is at the Asian Legal Defense Fund. And I was doing like create Asian organizing on the side. And for the past 10 years, I've been working at INCAPI as their first as a co-director, then executive director, um, the National Queer Asian Pacific Islander Alliance. And a tremendous amount of love and support for INCAPIA and the work that they do. Uh, they have a new executive director, and he's a great guy. I wish him all the success, and I'm here to support him in the background. I hope all of you will, too. And if you look at the picture, that little person in the upper right from the banner in 1987 was that little Asian kid that went to the March on Washington. I've been doing this f- stuff for a very long time, yo. And the little buttons are Stonewall 20, Stonewall 15, Stonewall 25. Um, so I really tried to figure out over the long term as an elder um, or a melder, what is it that we can do to try to advance this work? I want to recognize and say happy pride to everybody. But I cannot deny the reality of the violence that is upon us. And after this, uh, lecture, I'm going to give uh, both my email out um, and also give um, some resources out to all of you. To be very honest, I am the survivor of a hate crime from 20 years ago. I was gay bashed and I am a victim of a hate crime from 20 weeks ago for being Asian. I've been doing, a, if you follow me on LinkedIn, I've been doing a lot of work to support both victims, lawyers, council agencies and if any of you need help legal advice what to do or just want to talk please know i am here and noel ramirez is also um, a social worker he's been doing some really great work to support our community uh as many of you who are doing but i want to offer my own services to all of you and i really am counseling victims now i have my own uh, consulting for a nonprofit consulting firm, consulting and legal services firm, McPantai and Associates. I wanted to call it McPantai and Sisters, but that was like too, too gay. <laughs> and I said, yes, I know. I should have called it McPantai and Sisters, but you know, honey, I need to get, um, I need to bring in some of the corporate money in and foundations to make a life. So I needed something a little bit more too. I've sold out my community. I'm sorry. Um, but I'm doing good. I'm doing well and looking for my next gig. Anyway, uh, so be safe, yo. And please reach out if you need any support. Let's just do a background uh, about the LG, about the Asian American community. Then I'll do the Asian LGBT community and talk about the organizations and some additional work. Uh, remember, qu- I will stop for Q and A uh, twice during the presentation, so write them in. But I am not monitoring them now. 
Anthony, if it's an emergency question, like I'm talking too late or I am frozen, text me. You know my cell number. So when I say Asian, I really mean, it, I really need to get better on this, but Asian American, which is predominantly East Asian, South Asian, Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, Southeast Asia, Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, and the Pacific Islands, Native Hawaiian. But that's really a separate racial group um, who have their own identity and experience. There's 18 million of us across the United States. We are the nation's fastest growing racial minority group. We are the largest segment of immigrants coming to the United States. In the next 25 years, one in 10 Americans are going to be Asian. That's the numbers in California and New York today. In 25 years, what New York and California look like now will be Colorado, will be, I'm sorry, will be Iowa, will be Nevada, will probably be Colorado. Our growth is tremendous. Two-thirds of us are foreign-born. Um, Two-thirds are citizens also, but one-third uh, native-born and one-third naturalized. 80% of us speak a language other than English in our homes, uh, and 1.5 million of which of us are undocumented. The LGBT Asian community, you know, as the Asian community comes grows in numbers, more and more of us are coming out as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or gender nonconforming, gender variant, um, many identities, uh, pansexual, asexual. I won't go through all the identities. You could look up Facebook. The UCLA, the Williams Institute at UCLA finds that there is a quarter million of us who are LGBT immigrants and Asians constitute a disproportionate share of the LGBT immigrant population as compared with the overall uh, numbers. And so when we look at immigrants, who are queer, a higher number are Asian. Same thing when we look at Asians, a higher number of us tend to be LGBTQ. And I have some of those numbers uh, actually in the article. After this presentation, I will actually circulate. Um, you can look at the Harvard website right now, but I'll also circulate a link to the article and would love your feedback and commentary on it. The LGBT API community is intersectional. We have multiple identities. We are not only sexual, based on sexual orientation, gender identity, but also language, gender, dance, immigration, economics. For all the talk of Asians being a highly educated group with high rates of income, it's a model minority myth. Many of us are low income. We work in sweatshops or uh, serve water at restaurants and tea. So many of us since 9-11 and since the dubbing of, the of COVID as the coronavirus have suffered racial profiling, detentions, and deportation. 60% of Americans have, I, uh, have witnessed the attack or the blaming of an Asian for COVID-19. And, you know, I'm delighted and excited to see how many of us are standing up in allyship how many of us are giving back and donating to organizations, but it's not enough because the violence continues. And I actually do another talk, more of a workshop, more of a lecture, um, talk without a PowerPoint around what does this moment mean for us right now? For LGBT Asians, we are often overlooked and our needs are marginalized. We suffer from invisibility, isolation, and stereotyping. 
the LGBT agenda often disposes our needs. Immigration is not seen as a gay rights issue. The Asian American community is focused on the virus. I get it. But when will the Equality Act and discrimination in housing come center stage? When will those movements and communities center our group, our community, who are at the intersection? Now, this has been going on for a very long time. And in order to have a voice, many LGBT Asian API organizations across the country have formed. Some of them are short-lived. Others have endured for decades. And this timeline is an early timeline. If you look really closely, it starts in 1979 when the first LGBT organization, LGBT API organization is founded and is still in existence, barely, but it's still in existence. No, it's good. Uh, in Boston, Massachusetts. It's a long time ago. Then you had Gapson in Los Angeles, Intercon Gapson no longer exists, but Gapa, Gipimni are still around. And then you see how this grows. And this timeline only goes till 2009. What has happened in the past 10 years? Si- yeah, in the past 12 years since this timeline was done. So it gets a lot bigger, but I didn't have enough time to do all that research. Um, Although, Rochelle, you could help me with this timeline. And I took this from Incapia. This, the National Queer Asian Pacific Islander Alliance, is that federation that brings these organizations to network and to organize um, so that they have more capacity. I'm so grateful for the work that Incapia has done for so many years and continues to do. And this is a chart of where the organizations are. I believe this is updated as of 20. Uh, 2019. Um, and so there's many or, more organizations since then. In 2009, there were only 37 queer Asian organizations across the country. And it grew, when I left, to just about 60. A tremendous growth in about 10 years. About four of them are ethnic-specific, five predominantly Pacific Islander, those are mostly the Utopias. Um, seven are South Asian groups, two Southeast Asian women. Now, what's interesting here, some of them are women's groups, which tend to be trans-inclusive. In fact, they're almost all trans-inclusive. And there were five men's groups that were really men and not as inclusive. That has changed in the past two to three years. And I need to update this slide. But two thirds of them, most of the groups are multi-gender. Only five of those 60 organizations actually have full-time staff. And I'm gonna talk about uh, them a little bit, but most of this is about the non-staffed organizations, the all volunteer groups. You know, in the 1970s and 80s, the gay community had very few, if any, staffed organizations. The National Gay Task Force and Gay Men's Health Crisis and the Human Rights Campaign Fund were the three staffed queer, well, actually gay and lesbian HIV organizations in the country. And this is like in the early 80s. Now there's a proliferation of centers. Actually, the centers were probably around. But we are still developing our infrastructure. And our organizations, I've heard this so many times, and those of you who are involved with organizations, um, if I see, if I could see you, I see you nodding your heads that we deal with external challenges like homophobia and transphobia in the Asian community, racism in the gay community. Don't even get me started with um, what I've heard about online dating and sexual racism, and then family rejection. It is so wonderful that we can get married now. 
but who will come to the wedding if our parents do not accept us um, and recognize us for all of who we are? You know, for Asians, marriage is an enormous affair that involves like 300 people. South Asian weddings, they go on for days. We face internal challenges like leadership burnout and transition, lack of funding and capacity, and infighting. The call-out culture is extreme across the board. This is not unique to the LGBTAAPI community, but someone told me once that gay Asians, like in the LGBT or Asian community, is like a bucket of crabs. One of us tries to get out and the other ones claw you down. And I've said many times, why worry about the racists and the homophobes out there when we have our own community to worry about? The organizations face the pressure of being everything to everyone all the time. And though we know that that is not possible, it results in a public call out. And then we have to adjust to be that. Everything on your time. And look, I get it. I too have had made many mistakes over the years. And I've taken responsibility and have learned from all of those mistakes. Those of you who really know me, I mean, you know, the stuff that I would say like, you know, 15 years ago and do, I would never do today. And as my mentors and supporters, some of you who are on this call, who taught me how to better behave, how to raise money how to better manage your staff. And I'm still learning. I'm in my 50s now. I don't look like I'm in my 50s. Asians don't raise it, yo. Anyway. Um, but I've learned and grown. But so often the, the, the call-out culture is destructive. Not that people shouldn't be called out. But can we not transition it from calling someone out and pushing someone down? to calling them in, in the spirit of love and learning, because I would not have been able to achieve so much, whereas it's not for making mistakes and the grace of people for learning that that was a mistake and how I can do things better next time. So when Capio is founded to try to deal with some of these things, the leadership development, the capacity building, revitalizing a new generation of leaders for our community. And as I studied queer API organizations across the country, there's like four, maybe five constituent things that they do. And the, the little tiny chart is, you know, uh, some of the metrics. And I tried to break them down to, they do social activities, political activities, peer support, education, and then outreach. And the outreach, I don't think is a fifth because it kind of is everything. No one's going to come to your Bollywood party uh, or your dance, your social activities, if you don't do outreach and promote it. No one's going to come to a rally or demonstration if you don't do outreach, right? Who's going to join the peer support group or education? So outreach is kind of across the board. Uh, and what I found is that the most enduring organizations that have existed for more than a few months or more than two or three years without staff have been those groups that have a healthy mix, a blending and a balancing of these four social, political, peer support and education activities. And I'm going to go into each one of these in detail. 
And that is what I think, and my theory presents, a typography of intersexual, sexual and gender, and sexual empowerment and resistance. It's a tiger. And what I love about that, and, and look, if any of you are an artist or knows how to do an artist, my goal, so you can help me out, right, is, and just email me, I need to draw this tiger with these, this text on the left hand of your screen. The hind legs, that's the powerful part that gives us propulsion, that is our base, and that is the social activities of which we work. This is an analysis, you know, uh, uh, and, you know, um, an analysis. The social activities of what brings people into our organizations. Most people come into queer Asian organizations because they're looking for love, they're looking to hang out, they're looking to make friends. They're usually not looking for the other things at the outset. Some are, but not all. The four legs are those fighting arms where we need to advocate and support our community, right? Um, the tail or the heart is the peer support. I think it's a tail because the tail balances, but you have to know like zoology and anatomy to understand that the tail is that balancing part. It could be the heart. The love that we provide to others particularly the most vulnerable in our community. You know, when I was involved in a queer API organization, we had people coming to our meetings who were coming out at the age of 27, at the age of 37, and one time at the age of 57. First time. It's tremendous. Some of the 20-somethings, they've been out since they were 13 years old and they're ready to fight. Others... They just want to try to figure out how to meet somebody. And so we have to provide the heart and the love for our community. So you can help me maybe during Q&A and tell me, do you think it's more of a tail that balances us or if it's a heart? But that is what I think is the peer support that we provide. The head. The head is the brain. The educational work, the intellectual work that is both internal and external. Yeah, I know the brain is internal, but we need to do internal education so that we understand our own community, that we can know our culture and our lives. Some of the most wonderful programs that I've seen that queer Asian organizations have done is how to make mandus, right? How to do your makeup, either for a dyke or for a drag queen. Um, you know, safe and healthy sexual play and keeping safe. Um, wonderful. But we also have to do external education, which again goes to political consciousness. And before you could do advocacy, what are our rights? What is the deprivation of our rights? What are the things that we need to take care? Is there abuse in our community? Same-sex, intimate partner violence. And so the head gives us the, the consciousness to build ourselves both internally and externally. And then the stripes. Everyone knows what a tiger is because of how a tiger looks. It's beautiful black and orange and white underbelly. And that is the outreach that broadcasts its four legs, its, its hind legs, its brain, uh, its mind, <laughs> everything. Um, it's the external messaging. And it what keeps us all apart. It kind of goes all across. Um, 
I love commentary on this if you think it works. And I would love our, our cartoonist or an illustrator to try to help me make this into something that I could actually do. And I'll pay you a little something for it uh, as well. Um, so let's go into each one of these really quickly. Um, and then I will take questions. And I will make these slides available um, if you like uh, afterwards. So social activities. Potluck dinners, dance parties. You see down there, mahjong. Mahjong is very real for our community. Game nights, cultural performances, happy hours at gay bars, right? Where the Asians can just take over. All of them are wonderful opportunities and they build the brace and they draw people in. People want to be involved in an organization that is fun. What do we say in corporations now? Is that people looking for an experience, Right? And this is the experience that makes us feel who we are. And it is the propulsion, the grassroots, that brings us to advance as an organization. You constantly have to bring people in because organizations really are nothing more than a collection of people. Two, activism. We got to fight. And that's our forearms, right? Black Lives Matter, immigrants' right, protesting. Sometimes it's a simple letter to the editor in the Chinese or Korean language newspaper about our presence. Sometimes it's uh, partisan work uh, where we are working on candidates. There was a group I remember a couple of years ago in Atlanta, Georgia, that did a lot of work to try to elect Stacey Abrams into office. Obviously, she did not win that election for governor, but they campaigned electorally. And they could do that because they were not uh, an, an, an incorporated non-for-profit. I'll explain the incorporation status. But they were free to endorse uh, and to take positions in support of affirmative action if they wanted to. The tail, which is peer support, or maybe the heart that loves, or maybe both. I talked about coming out of the closet. And some of the groups do peer support groups for women, people of transgender experience, for young people. Um, this kind of changed, but continued under COVID. And all of this is pre-COVID, before virtual programming, right? And I'm putting it out there specifically because we're coming out of COVID. How do we rekindle and revitalize and reconstruct the organizations? Some of them do referrals, you know, for people who have HIV, uh, for mental health and finding a competent mental health provider uh, or legal advice. That's why everybody calls me for legal assistance. Um, some of the groups are there specifically for young people. And I love this picture of a South Asian mom who's giving out hugs. Just to say that I'm a Desi mom and I love you and I love my lesbian daughter or my trans child. Educational activities, I said, is both internal and external. Workshops, guest speakers, a speaker's bureau, a lecture. What is it that we do? Articles and newsletters. Things so that we could learn more about ourselves, our culture. And this is actually the one uh, slide that I actually do have of someone actually on a Zoom. But here you have a workshop from Seattle uh, where people are learning some different techniques in um overcoming racism and sexism and transphobia in our communities and outreach. And again, this goes across the board. The dominant images 
of the LGBT community are white. Of the Asian community are straight. And when you do see even queer Asians, it's a very particular image. It's very recent that we've seen any any queer Asians in the media. And they typically, and again, this is not all these are broad strokes, but East Asian, male, young, nice physique. Where are the South Asians, Pacific Islanders, trans people, the fat people, the older queer Asians, we're often invisible. The invisibility of Asian lesbians and Asian queer women kind of is even more historical around, you know, you have to take a feminist class to look at the historical relationships of lesbian relationships and same sex and and women-women love and affection which is not always, which is more fluid. It is not always sexual. And so impassioned letters that women had sent at the turn of the century to other women, but they're just friends. Uh, Women have always been much more advanced and in tune with their feelings to be able to share emotional bonds with other women, but not broach into sexual relationships. And again, we're seeing this change, particularly on the male side with bromances and other things. I don't know. So we can have commentary on that as well. But uh, groups are doing marches uh, at Asian Heritage Month and at Gay Pride. I want to note one thing about uh, that, two things about the outreach. One, when I first interviewed and talked to a number of leaders of queer API organizations, everyone marched in Pride. And that was great in June. But only some of them marched at Lunar New Year or Cherry Blossom Festival or the Philippine Day Parade. Um, Olympia Moy tells, I don't know if Olympia is here, but she tells the story of the first time that that uh, Asian Americans, uh, the Q-Wave got involved in the New Year Day uh, Parade several years ago. Salga in New York had been pushing to try to get into the end of day parade and were excluded for several years, affirmatively excluded. And it's the end of day parade is run by older, you know, the FIA, the Federation of Indian Organizations, the older generation. On the other side, Kiliwing Collectible, the Filipina group, uh, which is lesbian, had always marched in the Philippine day parade with no problems. The first time that Chinese, as an LGBT group, tried to march, uh, I remember Olympia Moy running this campaign, and you know she tells this story, so I'll, I'll defer to her. But one of the things that was interesting is that one of the leaders, who's Asian, Chinese, queer, supporting same-sex marriage, very out of the Asian community, told Olympia, I don't think it would be respectful for the LGBT community to march in the Lunar Day Parade. And Olympia stepped back and said, well, what do you think we're going to do? I mean, like, we're not going to be like all naked and like in like leather, right? We want to be more culturally tuned. So they sent these wonderful messages out of love and pride and support. Um, So often 
the coming out experience for white Americans is, I'm here, I'm queer, get used to it. But for Asians, it's more of a process. You know, we honor our communities and our families. I remember doing odd weeks on the street and uh, with a young Korean man, and he was very happy to give out Korean postcards. Actually, these Korean postcards at um, Greenwich Village in Chelsea. But when I said, let's go to the Hanarom, the Korean grocery store in K-Town. And he said, I can. Like, why? Someone might see me. My auntie shops there. We are out in the gay community as Asians, but we are closeted in the our ethnic communities as queers. And that's a problem. And so I want to applaud Gapimni and uh, a collective of uh, Koreans who developed these materials um, in Chinese and in Korean around visibility. Remember, 43% of Asians in America are limited English proficient. Four out of five speaks a language other than English in our home, but most of the resources in English of, of being queer is only in English. And there are consequences. If you look carefully, this slide from... I have to look too, I can't see. 2012, I'm so sorry. Um, what up? Did you see my booger? Um, this slide from 2012 showed that very few Asians support, this is a poll uh, that uh, uh, Alda, the Asian American Legal Defense Fund um, took that showed very few Asians actually supported same-sex marriage. At this time, most of America supported our right to get married but not Asians. And there's another slide that I do with, with Black and Latinx communities where we have not made the case and shown the love and demonstration of our community and our relationships. Again, this is changing a lot. It has changed a lot. The work that Incapia has done, the work that some of you have done in your communities has really altered this slide and updated and these numbers have changed tremendously. But I'm gonna stop there and I just want to take any questions that people might have. See, stop. Uh, and just have a little bit of a conversation um, uh, to see if anybody wanted to ask anything. Yeah, Glenn. Uh, Karen Lynn uh, asked. Hi, oh, Karen, how are you? I, she, Karen, I she asked earlier on, uh, is the higher percentage of AAPI represented among LGBTQ a reflection of a need for safe refuge, uh, for the lack of a better term, from countries of origin? I don't know. And I say that because I don't have any empirical evidence to that. Uh, and here, especially for RA, it's a research institute, I want to speak very carefully. I would opine, I would think so. But again, I haven't seen research, research that evidences that. And the challenge is, is that there's very few studies that talk about the queer Asian experience. Um, and almost all of them are about two topics, three topics, suicide, HIV, and mental health, which are important issues. But very few studies look at anything else besides that. And so based on studies and the scientific literature that I've seen, I don't know. I would think so. But again, what I think and what I find evidence for are two different things. 
then Karen also had a follow-up question. Uh, is the infighting a reflection of lack of funding and resources to go around in regards to those organizations you spoke about earlier, or a lack of collaboration and solidarity? It's all of it. I think, well, no, I don't think it's a lack of collaboration. Um, I don't think it's a lack of collaboration. In fact, I think that the leadership is always interested in collaborating. The members, you know, probably not so much. Um, I remember 20 years ago when I was on the steering committee of Gapimni, you know, we met with Saga and had a steer I went attended one of their steering committee meetings. And I realized 20 years ago that they were doing the same, having the same exact problems that we were having at Kapimni. Whether to have a closed or open listserv, I don't know if you remember that. Um, whether we should all join uh, AsianAvenue.com or Friendster or MySpace. I don't know if you remember those platforms. Um, or do we do it all, right? Um, how transparent should we be with our bylaws? So I don't, but the, the leadership, I think, likes to do collaboration. I think the infighting, I also don't think that the infighting is resource, financially, financial resources. I think the infighting is... Well, historically, a struggle between the more foreign-born members who are usually here on a visa, they're immigrants, and they just want to be gay, Asian, you know, out as trans people. They don't want to fight or do political work. And they fight with the American-born agents who are like, we need recognition. We need to be seen and affirmed. And they, it's like, what good is a party if we don't have our rights? And so there's that tension between the social and political factions. And what I have found is that social faction who just want to have parties tend to be more foreign-born. And that political side tend to be more American-born Asians. I mean, we see this now with us and our parents, right? Our parents are foreign-born and we are domestic-born. What I'm seeing, that's historical. What I see now, you misgendered me. You said something ignorant. You're not as woke as I am. You know, and, and you know, you harass me. And I didn't know. I'm, I'm sorry, so sorry. I did not mean to do that. And the assumption that people need to know everything all the time. And I don't know everything. And I've been saying, I've gotten called up many times. Some of you may have been the people calling me up, but I've learned every single time. But oftentimes it's just about calling out to make you feel better without any willingness to improve and learn and share and be in community. And that's really disappointing to me. I see that happen so often. We tear each other down instead of supporting each other to look up. Again, these are broad strokes. This is not everyone for everywhere, but it is what I found. And I think most of you can see what I'm talking about. Great. Uh, before we go on to the next question, uh, folks, if you have a question you want to actually ask aloud to Glenn, you can just do the raise hand function. And I'll call on you and you can ask him. So we'll move on to the next one we have here. Uh, Anthony, you'll up. moderate that or the... Yeah, I'll moderate. Yeah, I'll take care of all the... <laughs> I would love to hear voices if you can. Yes. 
Uh, Rochelle here asks, uh, could you explain a little bit more about the call-out culture? Uh, how is the culture particularly relevant to the queer or Asian or LGBTQ plus uh, Asian community? It's only relevant in that it's happening too. And it probably happens twice over. Uh, you know, I mean, this is like across the board. Um, other people call it cancel culture, um, which I, I really don't like that term. But, you know, the call out is just like you. There are a lot of people who are college educated that went to fine schools, you know, that demonstrate allyship. And then, yeah, they took a women's studies class or a black studies class. But many of us didn't. And many of us, you know, are ignorant. I remember working with a parent uh, who has a, uh, an LGBTQ kid, and they were going to do some workshops uh, across the country. But they said, we don't want to say anything offensive, but we don't really understand. My kid is gay, is lesbian. I don't understand the transsexuals. I said... Oh, okay, we, we're not putting you in front of an LGBTQ audience unless without understanding terminology. But I didn't yell at her. I didn't say, you don't have a message that you could bring to the community. But she needed some patience and learning. And some people in our community today are extremely urgent. You have to know right away. You have to know it all immediately. And some of us come from a different time. We didn't have that opportunity. And that's hard. It, it, the lack of grace uh, that I've seen and the, the, the power that can be levied by people who feel powerless through call-out culture is valid but also doesn't create community in a healthy, positive, and living way from what I've seen. It is more destructive. I think we should call in ignorance, animosity, stupid stuff, but in the spirit of love and learning so that we can do it better next time. But the assumption that people are all out to get us, that we were all mini Trumps, you know, I it's hard. So I think it only impacts the community in that it really does impact our community. But it's really, you see this across the board. And I think we need a different way of interacting with each other in this world because we're all here together. <clears throat> Thanks. Uh, and then Noel has a question. Uh, what have you done to address call-out culture in the collectives that you've been a part of? Uh, have you handled the hyper- vigilance uh how do you create a culture in these collectives that help people turn towards oh no well you know what i'm gonna say hi noel number one i don't know i am a victim of it too i've had a hard time um but my message has been if we can transition call out to call in in the spirit of love and learning and i really tried to model that when i was at my last organization um, I tried to model that when I was in uh, local community-based organizations because other people did that for me. You know, um, a bunch of old white dykes, older radical feminists 
helped me understand sex and sexism and the misogyny that I used to express. And even now I still make mistakes. Uh, and, you know, it, it, behavior modification is tough. Unlearning sexism in America, unlearning racism is an ongoing challenge. Um, and I've had many mistakes, but I try to say I'm trying to do better. And I'm so sorry. And we'll take responsibility. So I take responsibility. I try to model improvements, but not everybody is there. And not everybody wants to shed grace and love. And let me say, some people in our community are so damaged, are so hurt, that all they know is, you know, if you've been abused your whole life, it's hard to show any sort of love. And those individuals, I think, and again, this is might be really heavy, and I'm free to have the challenge, those individuals who just are the most toxic, I think really need the most love and support. Because I don't think they're toxic and negative because they want to be. It's the only thing they've known. And that's hard. And that's why you should get a social work degree or, you know, go to therapy school uh, because we need more of us who have LGBTQ sensitivity, who are culturally competent to be able to do this work. And I will put no else, um, you know, uh, out there as a role model for us all, who is just featured in the, um, as a notable um, MSW. Right, Noel? Right. Thank you. Great. Uh, that's all the questions for now. So perhaps we'll just continue with the presentation. Sure. What do sustainable queer API organizations do? They reach an incredible number of people. I don't have the Instagram numbers because this is a little old. It only goes to 219. Um, but if you look at the increase through email lists or Facebook, Twitter, of how groups have done their outreach and communications, how many of them are members and leaders? Queer API organizations are reaching, and this still needs to be updated, 124,000 people across the United States. That is the aggregate of all the LGBT AAP organizations. There are 7,500 people who say that they are a member of a queer API organization. There are 400 of them who are leaders of those organizations. And what's exciting is that when you learn how to run a queer Asian organization, you learn how to run an organization. You learn how to run a meeting. You learn how to raise money and how to delegate. With difficulty and, and fits and starts, but you learn how to do this so that after you've done your work at your local queer Asian organization, you can go on and do this in a multiracial organization or, or an LGBTQ group, or maybe in your company or whatever. And so we're training, our organization is training a new generation of leaders for our community who are making a tremendous impact and reaching a lot of people. And yet the infrastructure is pathetic. Sorry. I mean, our organizations, almost half of them have budgets under $1,000. There are organizations that have like a million dollar budget. And I will bet you completely that our organizations can do so much more with less than a thousand dollars. 
because we have no overhead. We have no staff. Everything, when you get a grant, all the money goes to translation and printing and communication. A quarter of them have budgets um, under 1,000 to 10, uh, and the others are uh, 10,000. The ones over 50 are the ones who actually have staff, who are doing regular program and social services. And the budget size actually shows where the groups are um, at different spaces. I have yelled at, excuse me, I have supported, no, I have held accountable, no, I have in the spirit of love and learning told funders and foundations to invest in the queer API organization because the return on the investment is so much broader because so many of us aren't incorporated. 41% have no legal status. We're nothing more than a bowling team. Only one in five of us actually have our own 501c3. 38% are fiscally sponsored. And a lot of this is the work that Incapia is doing. Um, There is a, in America, the nonprofit industrial complex. And what I'm trying to figure out is, do Asian groups to be sustainable and long-term have to become and formalized, become a nonprofit and a 501c3? And I have learned over the years that there are groups across this country, Q-Wave is over 10 years old, or maybe even more. Karen, put the right number in the chat. Yipin means what, 30 years old as an organization. Tracone, another 35 years. And they've never had staff. They've even gotten grants and have done some of the most impactful work in our communities. They are changing hearts and minds. And they are free to endorse candidates. They are free to take stands. They're free to do whatever they want. I mean, this comes with its own trappings, but also comes with some of its benefits. And the sources of funding... Most of the money comes from events, fundraising events, and individual donations and membership suites. Very few, only a third of organizations have received any grants from a foundation. Only a quarter of them have received a corporate sponsorship. We are paying nickels and dimes to support our communities. And so at the end of this, I will send, and in my article, I list out the queer API organizations across the country, support them. We all think that, you know, that we have to become a 501c3 because everybody wants, you know, a corporate fund, wants um, uh, to make a charitable gift. And even I, in my giving uh, and membership, ask, you know, are you 501c3 because I'll take it as a deduction. But honestly, if you say no, it's fine. I'm still going to make the donation because I care about the organization and the work that it does. But we think in leadership that, oh, well, Glenn won't make the donation unless we're 501c3. I'm like, no, I just want to maximize the benefit. But if not, I'll still make the gift. Um, and here you see little Malcolm, who is, this is not Incapius money. He was actually at a salon. He had a lot of cash. Um, and you know the red envelope. Uh, so do give and do support our community. And a little bit of money goes a very, very long way. Queer API organizations are doing incredible work across this country. Some are well-established and some are just starting out. They provide a safe space 
for young people, people transgender experience and women, they're educating their members and the broader community. They're challenging homophobia and challenging racism in the communities, and they are doing so much with so little. And so really, that's it for now. And I would love to stop there and take more questions and even commentary about, um, I have one last other piece to do right after this, but it's very small. It's not about the article. It's sort of where it comes about. But I do want to stop there and ask for questions and other commentary or thoughts about what I presented so far or how I can improve this. Stacy asked, uh, Glenn was going to share his story. That's next. (laughs) Actually, I'm not going to fully share my story, but yeah, I'll get there. Okay. Uh, any other questions? Uh, uh, Carolyn asks, uh, how do you think uh, the recent slash renewed efforts in DEI will affect AAPI groups and nonprofits who have been, uh, who have, haven't been inclusive of LGBTQ? <laughs> so, if you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll know that I'm actually doing a lot of work with a number of companies and law firms around and financial firms around DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. If you don't know, these are programs that companies have started up to try to have a more inclusive workplace. The um, number of studies have shown that companies that are diverse are more profitable. Uh, the employees are happier. So when they're happier, they work better. Uh, they work longer. And so, I mean, corporations are profit-making institutions, right? And you want to milk as much as you can out of your employees. And companies where, which let their employees, where they feel fully valued, they are proud of where they work, work better, work harder, work longer, and in the long run, it's better for the company's business. There is a business case for diversity. Plus, the increasing globalization of the economy and the diversity of the clients and the service populations are undeniable as well. <clears throat> so companies are leading this effort. I think better than some nonprofits, actually. That's provocative. But unfortunately, it's still very siloed. And it flattens our identity to the African-American experience, the Latinx experience, the gay experience, the women's experience, veterans, Asians, maybe South Asians too. And if you are a Asian lesbian woman, you're like in three support groups, right? And one of the things that I found is that they're having a hard time figuring out intersectionality. Right. How do we handle all multiplicity of identities? And I'm just complicating it further for them when I talk about diverse diversity and inclusive inclusion. And then what is the equity? If you don't understand these concepts of diversity, equity, inclusion, and uh, for those of you who are students or may not be in the workforce, just uh, somebody explained DEI as diversity, like a high school dance. Diversity. Are there enough people of color, women, trans people at the dance? Inclusion. 
there might be a diverse group of people there, but will anyone dance with you? Are all the minorities and, and lesbians and gay and bisexual folk relegated to the side? And the equity. If you are, you know, a diverse member of the dance, will you win the crown and the award for being a good dancer? Will your recognition and abilities come to the fore? And that's how someone explained to me diversity, equity, inclusion. Companies, I think, are challenged in dealing with that <clears throat> for each one of us. Now, increasingly, nonprofits are finding out that they have to do this. If anything, if nonprofits tend to be more racially and gender inclusive or diverse than companies, um, but they still face their own challenges, especially larger companies. And they are going through their own challenges because suddenly they're being held accountable on these concepts as well. Um, and I think they're trying to figure it out. There is an irony in nonprofit culture that, you know, because we pay less, that you love your job for the work, that it already is sensitive and inclusive, but it often is not. And people of color, women don't feel heard or affirmed in nonprofits, even larger institutions. And they are just beginning to figure this out where the goal is not profit maximization, <clears throat> but is the services of the nonprofit. But I think they're far behind actually corporate America, um, unfortunately. <laughs> Okay, um, Rochelle has a question uh, from their perspective and experiences. It seems that nearly all of the queer Asian people that they know are out to their friends and on social media, but not to their families. Yeah. Do you think this is generally specific to the Asian community? Are uh, there groups that address these issues about coming out within families? Well, that, Stacey, where are you? Chime in the response for Rochelle. I believe Stacey is involved in a P-Flight chapter. Um, oh, maybe I just outed you, Stacey Shigawa. Um, anyway, um, who is the um, researcher at um, John Jay? Juan Battle. So Juan Battle's research, uh, which is confirmed uh, through a couple of other studies, has demonstrated that <clears throat> there are levels of coming out and in the Asian American experience, two things happen that is unique. Number one, it is a process and a long-term process that typically takes years, if not decades. It is very typical and common for someone to come out to their immigrant parents and for it to, to take 10 to 15 years before they find acceptance. Uh, that's a very long time. And in, in this today's culture where everyone's text messaging and everybody wants it now, going through this process, kids suffering in silence for an extended period of time. I mean, I'll tell you, even in my own family, you know, my ex-husband um, was, you know, when we were married uh, and together, he would come to the family picnics, he would support, he would help out. And one of the things that would happen is, but he would be picture taker, not in the family picture. We transition that to, he can be the picture, but he has to sit in the back. 
because your sister who has kids, you know, in the front uh, has to be there. Of course, grandma and grandpa always sit in the middle. Um, so we suffer in silence for a very long time. And the young people tend to be terrified of coming out to mom and dad. And my own story is that, is that, you know, I came out to friends, family workers. Um, I didn't have my space uh, back then. Um, I had personal ads uh, <laughs> in the newspaper in the Village Voice. Um, I came out to my aunties and uncles and cousins and siblings and my grandmother before I came out to mom and dad. It took me 10 years. Uh, to come out to my parents. It wasn't until I was really 35 because I never wanted to center myself. You know, when I was ready to come out uh, to my parents, um, you know, my sister said that she was going to get married. Okay, this is not a good time. And then, you know, that passed and I was going to try to come out. And then my grandmother died. Ah, this is not a good time. And then, Oh, my grandfather died, right? So both grandparents died. Uh, so then I got harassed. Then I got beaten up for being gay. And I'm like, okay, I can't come out. I'm facing too much stuff. Internalized homophobia. And that just... And then I said, I'll go to law school. Uh, and then it's like, okay, I'll talk about because I need them to help me with preparing for school. So 35, I came out. And it was difficult you know, for my parents, because my mom said to me, there are no gays back home. How could you be gay? But she, and I said, mom, what are you saying? There's like big gay pride celebrations in Seoul, Bombay, Hong Kong. But my mom remembers an Asia, a gay community from Asia from 1965. Not what it is today. She was stuck in a time warp. The other thing that I've noticed with some of the young people who are uh, g- gender nonconforming or gender variant is that they come out to their parents and their parents do know trans people. They say, what? You want to be a prostitute? And then the kids are like, what? No, ma, why would you say that? Because that's who the trans people are back home. They're sex workers. And that takes another. I know some young people were always afraid, terrified of disrespecting our parents, even though we fight with them all the time, and them disowning us. They have sacrificed greatly for them. We do honor them. And what is a bigger shame than to have a queer, you know, sexual deviant as a child so we just suffer and we don't come out and some of them say that they'll never come out and I said to them never is a very long time the work that Rainbow API Rainbow Families is doing in PFLAG San Gabriel Valley um, I'm so proud of them because they are helping parents understand the LGBTQ experience parent to parent and how it takes a very long time to come to acceptance for all of who you are and who they are. And what I can say, based on my personal experience across the community, every Asian person that I know who has been out to their parents for over 20 years, their parents have come to full acceptance. 
I do not make that statement lightly. I know a lot of people and everyone who's been out for 20 years. Now that's a long time too, right? They're not necessarily five and 10. And so 20 is long, but I don't know anybody who's been out for more than 20 years, whose parents have not fully accepted them, their partners, sometimes even their kids and their lifestyle. But it does take an incredibly long time of denial. You'll never change, whatever. But I tell people you'll get there and it'll be hard. And you need to be patient. The other thing I've noticed, and this can be backed up empirically, Asians usually don't throw out their kids and they don't disown their kids. When I came out to my dad, he said, you know, I'm not happy about it, but you're still my son. He didn't say I love you, but you're still my son and we will still support you, you know, financially and others. And parents, it is embarrassment for them to not support their kids. And there is no 21 and you're an adult. You know, our parents are involved with us our whole lives. And I really looked at the rates and numbers of Asians in homeless shelters amongst teen runaways. Our numbers are extremely low. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. And there are maybe evangelical Asian Christian parents that do throw out their kids. But by and large, overwhelmingly in the upper 90s, most do not. The kids might leave, but the parents didn't throw them out because it's an embarrassment not to support your child, raise your child, and educate your child as an Asian parent. And you know what happens? I mean, my mom, I love her. I'm in my 50s, although I don't look it. Um, My mom still peels my shrimp. I mean, ma, I get it. You know, we go to the buffet. I'm like, I'm done. I don't, I assure you, I know how to peel shrimp. But she's my mother. And that's what she does. And she keeps doing that. So that's partly the story, and I wanted to say a little bit more about something else, but for the aging experience, that's how it's different. Thank you, I think, Rochelle, for that question. Gratitude. Some of you know this. I came out in the 1980s at the height of the AIDS crisis, and I was a femboy, and I was convinced I was going to catch AIDS and die. I had no future. I was the only Asian on my block. You know, my neighbors, Christopher Bardio, who's Italian, and Sean McCallaghan, who's Irish, said that my house smelled foody because my grandmother would fry shrimp. I wanted to pour porcelana all over my body, the fake cream, because I wanted to be white. I wanted to be American. I wanted to be accepted. And I had to overcome my own internalized racism. Um, I was badly bullied in school because I was very femme. Um, I hated piano lessons. I didn't get good grades. And I was not good in sports. And I wanted to commit suicide. And I actually tried. Uh, fortunately, I was not successful and was a couple of women, <clears throat> black women, actually, one who was a Black Panther, who actually supported me and got me into college and eventually law school. 
And in law school, I found out that I was able to actually achieve and get good grades. I buckled down. I learned what to do. Um, I couldn't do this in college. I had awful grades because... You know, I, I miss classes. I miss astronomy classes because I would hang out in the Gay and Lesbian Alliance office. So I had like two Fs. I had none of the indicators for success of being a lawyer. But because of affirmative action, I got into law school <clears throat> and I graduated cum laude, graduated top of my class. And I went and I said, I wanted to give back to my community. And I joined the Asian American Legal Defense Fund. And I joined Gipindi and I said, I'm going to file civil rights claims on behalf of Asians because no one's listening to us. I've achieved so much. I filed, sued, you know, the president, I sued Congress, I sued states and cities. I've tried to change the world. And I always felt alone still because all the gays were white and all the Asians were straight. And Gapimni, Two Wave, Salga, these groups taught me leadership skills, taught me that I had confidence that I could do something. It was always a struggle, you know, because it's like two steps forward, one step back, a lot of pushback, but I learned how to run a meeting. I learned how to do a conference. I learned how to solicit donations. When I first joined Incapia, the organization had $35,000 and only two staff. I was not the first staff. I may have been the longest, but I wasn't the first. It was hard later on, I came on staff. When I left Incapia, which is still thriving today, you know, five staff and a $1.2 million budget. I never thought I could be a nonprofit executive. I never thought I could raise a million dollars. I'm just like most of y'all. And it was people, and I made mistakes and I have harmed people and hurt people, but I've learned every single time. And even today, I learned times in which I, you know, may have disrespected someone without knowing it. And I am so sorry. But it is this community that has taught me so much. That's taught me that I can do good work. That I can, you know, give back and be held and be supported. And I'm so incredibly proud of this community that I did not build, that all of you have built. And I had the opportunity and the luxury of just helping and being a part of that. But I wasn't doing the work at the ground. I wasn't telling stories and doing this. Many of you are. My parents... now fully accept me they love me and they you know I'm a gay dad my son who's black is grandson number five because you all have changed the world for our community and my parents are part of that community I am so grateful to all of you for all the work that you have done every single day I'm so grateful for those of you who've called me out because you've called me in and I've learned. Those of you who have forgiven me for my mistakes and those of you who've pushed me to be more excellent. Anthony, 
Joyce, you too are a part of that group too. Ari is one of those groups. I miss all of you, but I ain't going anywhere. I might go teach more. But thank you for helping me achieve so much over the years. Over freaking 35 years of doing this work. And so if there's any way I can pay this forward to all of you, reach out to me. I will be as as generous as I am with my time to support you, to pay it for, because someone did this for me. I will do it for you. You know, I adore all of you who are here today. Thank you for spending your Friday night to listen to a boring lecture from a stodgy professor. Uh, And thank you for all the work that you do every day. Uh, Glenn, maybe you want to talk a little bit about the work that you're doing over the summer um, with uh, the borough of Manhattan Community College and together with Hunter College. Uh, yeah, no, I'm really happy. And I think uh, Noor and, uh, yes, Noor and Rochelle are here in the house. So this article that I use, uh, it's published um, at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, did, you, did I ever think that I would get an article published by the Harvard JFK School of Government? I was a kid that wanted to commit suicide many years ago. And here I am publishing at, on a Harvard journal. Really, you know I've hit it big. Uh, but that buys into white supremacy, doesn't it? Because it's Harvard. Oh, well, uh, but I'll take it. Or maybe like the history of like stereotypes of Asians being a model minority. Anyway, uh, yeah, this article, I want to transition not just into a theory, but into a book. Someone told me, actually, it was Mira Nair, uh, the Bollywood filmmaker. Uh, you may know her. She did a, a monsoon wedding. And she said, if we don't share our stories, no one will. No one is chronicling our community. And those of you who know me know, I know a lot because I've been around the block a lot. Good ways and bad ways. And I want to write it down. I want to interview other people and not tell their stories, but give them an opportunity so that our history for the past 20 to 25 years can be recorded, remembered, and shared. Because as a poet, Maya Angelou said, we do not know where we are going if we don't know where we have been. Nor and uh, Rochelle, who are in the chat, who are here today, are actually helping me as undergraduate researchers to do some of this work. And they may be reaching out to some of you who I know in the community to give your story. Hey, Karen, I need you to write an article, too, for my book. But someday I want to write this into a book. I don't know when it'll come out, and I definitely don't have a publisher. But I want to start remembering this before Alzheimer's and, you know, sets in and I forget it to try to record it and see if we can memorialize it. I will say there are other books that are out there and literature um, the only thing that I notice is that it's not community-based necessarily. It's not movement-based. And if it is, it's highly academic. Um, and I like to take a theory and actually put into real practice. Um, so that's the other thing, too. Um, uh, and through the HCAP program, through BMCC and Hunter College, Noor and uh, Rochelle are working with me to do that history, the literature of you, the community interviews on that. So they may be reaching out to some of you. I'm grateful to them. They've already started doing some great work and this is part of their orientation lecture. 
Uh, now, are they Hunter College students or uh, community college students? Rachelle, Noor, what are you? Anthony is asking you a question. <laughs> oh, yeah, I go to Hunter College. Okay. And how did you get, <laughs> how did you become involved in the project in the first place together with Professor McPenty? Oh, um, so I got a lot of emails from HCAP and I finally saw there's an HCAP research program and I decided to apply. And I wanted to get mentored by Glenn, I mean, Professor McClontai. <laughs> and um, yeah, I got it. So I'm very happy about that. Great. And are you studying Asian American studies? Um, no, I'm a nursing student. But okay. I have taken an Asian American class before. Great. Thank you. And then we have uh, Lenore. Hi. Um, I'm also a Hunter College student, and I also had, went through the same application process. And I'm really proud to have and honored, like really um, excited to work with Professor Glenn Martin on his book and hopefully um, make a difference. Okay. And are you yourself, uh, what, what are you studying at Hunter? Um, I'm a double major in psych and Chinese with a minor in Asian studies. Asian wow. <laughs> Busy summer for, for, for you both. Uh, we have a uh, question from Noel who asks, what's next for you, Glenn? Well, you did mention the current summer project and upcoming book. Uh, I don't know if you have any uh, particular uh, speaking engagements planned for maybe later on this month or next month uh, coming up. Yeah, uh, thanks, Noel. And just you know, to tell you, I'm looking for a job. I mean, I still teach at Hunter College. I have my consulting firm. I've always done legal services. I think m many of you know this. Um, I've always had a side practice. It's picked up in business. And since the violence has come about, unfortunately, a lot of people are asking me for legal advice. So I'm helping people out um, or companies and other lawyers just to walk them through the law. Um, but I, to be honest, uh, I like being a nonprofit executive. You know, I learned a lot. I think I have a talent. I like to raise money. Uh, I don't beg for money. I raise money with a lot of integrity, with building a vision or showcasing a vision and asking other people to join me in that work. Like I don't beg and say please or guilt people into giving. So, and that's special. Not everyone likes to raise money. Not everyone likes to manage a staff and build program. Uh, and do finances, I do. And I have a talent. And so I am not done yet. I am looking for another CEO or executive director position or a senior management position like in a big organization. But I'd like to go bigger. Bigger staff, bigger budget. And I want to stick close to my brand. Um, either an Asian API, uh, LGBT, or public interest law legal. I am not... <laughs> Get the great intersectional. I'm done. I'm, I love y'all. You know, Kendrick and, and Tapia can take over. Uh, I want to go into a different field. Well, I want to stay close. I can also do philanthropy. I used to be a trustee to the Bohm Foundation. So we'll see. If you know any job openings, send them my way. I'm happy to apply. Otherwise, I'll hang out. And the one thing is, I'll be, I mean, I still teach, so I'm fine. Um, I really want to make sure that my talent, experience, and tolerance 
aligned with the organization's mission, vision, and what they need me to do. Right. I really want, so I'm picking very carefully um, for another organization. Um, I mean, there's other things that are come my way. And I said, no, you know, I'm not committed enough. It's not exactly what I want to do. And those of you who know me know that I have a lot of love to share, but I have to love what I do and who I work for to share that love. It has to be real. Uh, so you'll find out. Follow me on LinkedIn and you'll find out. In the interim, I don't know. Send me job announcements. I'll look at them all. All right. So we're almost at time. So at, uh, before we conclude, I just want to thank Glenn again for a wonderful presentation. Uh, he'll be... <laughs> He'll be uh, sending all of you out the direct link to his article and some other material too, uh, in regards to uh, anti-Asian violence, where you can report it and, and what you can do about it. Uh, in spite of the recent uh, rise in anti-Asian uh, hate going on in the country. Uh, as a reminder, uh, early voting begins tomorrow, June 12th to the 20th in New York City. Uh, this year's primary election will be using ranked choice voting for selecting candidates for offices, including mayor and city council member. Uh, the Institute recently hosted an online workshop on ranked choice voting. Uh, you can actually watch that video online on the front page of our website. Uh, to find your early voting uh, site, please visit the Board of Elections online at vote.nyc. Uh, there you can also request your absentee ballot, uh, which the deadline is coming up on the, the 15th. So if you don't wanna go to the poll sites, uh, you could still request a ballot online. They'll mail it to you and you mail it back. And also for folks seeking resources in addition to what Glenn will send out in regard to, to uh, Asian American history and anti-racism for your classroom or community, the Institute has a list available on our website under publications, CUNY forum, uh, under the uh, resources section of Corona Conversation. So you can find that on our website. So uh, enjoy your weekend, stay healthy, get vaccinated, uh, be an upstander if you see a fellow person in need and good night. <laughs>